0: Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we explore the weekly come-follow-me discussions and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I'm your host, Jason Lloyd, here with my friend and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What's up? Hey! So in this episode, we're taking a look at Doctrine and Covenants sections 20 through 22, but we probably won't get to 21 and 22. Section 20 is pretty loaded and pretty heavy. We're talking about the organization of the church, some of the priesthood there. But there's a few interesting verses right off the start that kind of capture my attention and imagination. I think we're going to kind of dive down into those a little bit today. So right off the bat in verse 1, there's something a little bit controversial, at least controversial in my mind. Here we go. Here we go. So it says, okay, okay. This has been cited by a few people, including um, President Hinckley, President Kimball, President Lee, as as the reason why that we we think the birth of Jesus Christ was April six, way back thousands of years ago when he was born, because at the introductory to this this section it says a, a thousand. Let me see before I before I just butcher this completely. It says the rise of the Church of Christ in these last days being 1830 years since the coming of our Lord, the Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh. So citing that example is saying, hey, this is this is referencing to the day 1,830 years since since when Christ was born. And and I've had a hard time with that personally. When I look at that, it, it seems to me just a fancy way of saying the year 1830, or it's 1830. And Further study from the Joseph Smith papers kind of bears that out, where they find out that this first verse wasn't even part of the original revelation. It was written as a preface to the revelation after the fact. But it's not to say that they're necessarily wrong for for stating that. Um, Joseph Smith says that the day that the church was organized was given to them by revelation. So maybe there's something still there. But how do you separate when a prophet is 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 prophesying in the name of the Lord versus when they are saying something to the best of their understanding and is it always right do we always listen or or are there is there some leeway there is there a little bit of flexibility with what a prophet is saying is is he is he always dead on what are your thoughts Nate
1: oh here we go dude i should make a little <laughs> bumper i should make a little bumper that anytime we're we're ready to go for it i can just hit that bumper and it's like this massive like a just get everybody fired up because we're going for it i mean here's here's where my answer would be first of all, you always listen like that's I think that that's the easy that's the easy and safest place to start um whether or not that means that they have to be right or wrong about every detail of every little thing, I don't think that that I don't think that that is affected by that if that makes any sense and and especially something like this, you go but I mean. Is it exactly this day? Like I don't know. Um, is that going to matter if I believe that that's exactly literally the day? However many years before, I don't. Hopefully that doesn't keep me out of heaven. If it does, but um, I think to the to the bigger part of that question, I think that the the answer is sure. Pray about it do that stuff go through that process and and if there's something that's that's you're having a hard time with um doctrinally that's conflicting like yeah for sure spend some time and try to figure out where that is if it's things like this like i don't think it's unhealthy to talk about it and find out like oh is this is this being interpreted correctly is this being whatever and um we were never told we were never promised that a prophet will never be wrong about something right like we, we were never we were no no nowhere anywhere in the scriptures that we promised that like the the that the man that is called to be the prophet won't make mistakes or misinterpret things or say things that are incorrect. We're told that he won't lead the church astray, right? Excellent point. And I think that there's a pretty big difference in leading the church astray versus versus some of the wacky things that Brigham Young may or may not have said back in the day. You know what I mean? Like, like things that, that, um, I, I don't know, I guess from, from me and from my perspective, I couldn't possibly look at and be like, oh, the church is being led astray. Now, even then though, does it mean that there have been things that have needed to change and be corrected and fixed over time as we've received more revelation? Sure.
0: Yeah. That's a great point. And I look at this, um, Joseph Smith, as I've been studying Doctrine and Covenants and and looking back at his history and the history of Joseph Smith, if there's one thing I've learned, that it's God really does respect the agency of all men, including the prophet, right? Joseph Smith... The Lord had a very important work for him to do, yet the Lord waited years for him to come back to the Lord and ask him what next. Instead of trying to mandate and dictate and take away Joseph Smith's agency, the Lord allows his prophets, his called people, the ability to, to grow, to make decisions. Just because they're his servants doesn't mean that now all of a sudden they're disqualified from having any agency or any opportunity to do things on their own. Their own. If anything, being the Lord's chosen or the Lord's servants means that the Lord. Trusts them and respects their agency to allow them to to explain, share, do whatever they can, and and the Lord helps them when they're speaking in His name. Though I think that's another thing. And and this reading Joseph Smith's journal, there was a day that he was he was reading German, studying, and then later he had um, a brother and sister from Michigan come and visit him, and he had kind of a disagreement with the sister. Uh, she thought that once a prophet was called as a prophet that they were always a prophet mm. and joseph smith corrected her and said a prophet is only a prophet when acting as a prophet
1: see so it's, that's a great that's a great point i guess the, the easy question then would be like well then how how are we supposed to <laughs> you know what i mean like how are we supposed to determine because the thing is like i dude i understand i understand the trickiness of this right uh-huh. like i understand the trickiness of well, so does that mean that, like, if they ever say anything wrong, we can just chalk it up to, well, they, I guess they weren't speaking as a prophet at that time, you know what I mean, or, or it's like, it is it, I guess I can see the criticism in that going. Oh, I guess that's too easy of a way out, right? Right. And the thing is, is that, and again, like, again, I'm not going to claim that I have all the answers about this, but to me, I I look at it like anything else with it. Through the progression of time, like that it that God has shown, like you just said with his prophets, being human and being able to make mistakes is that I look at it and I go, cool, is this is this something that is going to send the church into apostasy, right? Is this something is this is this thing that they said um, that that has later been revised or revisited or all out, no, that wasn't that wasn't right. Are any of those things, things that took away from the, the priesthood being on the earth and from the, you know what I mean? Like the ordinances that we get done from the nature of God, from, you know what I mean? All of those things that fundamentally the church is built on. And then like you said, it's like, yeah, yes. Like even, even people receiving revelation about the church can have opinions on things and and try to be pondering and try to be learning and trying to be you know what I mean figuring some of this stuff out too. You got to remember like Joseph Smith was trying to figure so much of this out on the spot as he was going too, mm-hmm. right? And and I, again like I just look at it. Big picture would be are any of those things things that that would have compromised you know the the I don't know, the restoration of the church right right are any of these things shooting shooting the the members into apostasy, right? Excellent.
0: And and I think maybe a good a good example to to kind of drive that point home is Jeremiah when you go back and read the Old Testament and he uses a parable about about a bird. I believe it's the partridge, I can't remember. Um he says that the bird will come over and steal other birds' eggs by sitting on their necks and hatching what wasn't their own, but then the birds end up leaving them at the end. And he's using this story to try to portray a principle. And in today's we look back at that and geologists, naturalists, scientists, biologists they say this doesn't happen. This characteristic was misunderstood back then. That the, the partridge isn't stealing other birds' eggs or this isn't happening the way it is. But does it change the principle? Whether whether the story is accurate or, or even take it back to Christ's time, if he is using a story, a parable, you can ask yourself, was there really a judge or was there really a woman that was doing it? Is that story true? Or, or is that story, really, it's not about the story, it's about the principle or, or what's trying to be conveyed, the message, as you say. What's important? What's the heart of it? What are we supposed to be learning out of it? And is our focus in the right place? Because if we're focusing on the fallacy of the story or the details in a way that that we missed the whole point or we're shooting beyond the mark, maybe we're falling off the boat or we're falling behind because we were so hung up on a detail and, and not realizing that the Lord is trying to to communicate with us in a way that makes sense for us, but might not always be entirely 100% accurate, but it's very effective at getting the principle or getting the meaning conveyed to us. All right. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit into verse 8, and, and this is we're talking about Joseph Smith receiving power to translate the Book of Mormon. So in verse 8 it says, And gave him power from on high by the means which were before prepared to translate the Book of Mormon, which contains a record of the fallen people and the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and the Jews. So the Lord gave him this power to translate the Book of Mormon, and the question I want to ask is why? Why was this so important? Why did the Lord feel like it was necessary that he had a Book of Mormon translated before they restored the gospel here on earth in the last days? And, And do you have any thoughts, Nate, before we dive into the next verse?
1: Yeah, I've got thoughts. <laughs> Any thoughts you want to share? <laughs> <laughs> Always. Um, I mean, fundamentally, and again, this has been this has been, I feel like, hammered home by various, um, you know, general conference talks and things like that. But, but, I mean, I, I personally truly believe that the Book of Mormon is absolutely the best tangible evidence that we have of God restoring his his church back to the earth right oh yes and that and that when you look at it from a um a scientific level for for as many as many holes as you might try to find or poke in it there's so many more unexplainable miraculous things contained within it that that trying to explain it trying to explain it away um, and dismiss it scientifically is is hard for me to fathom. And as somebody that has spent, you know, a lot of time combing through all of the arguments of why um, and the evidences of why it is or isn't authentic or real or, or what we claim it is, they don't hold up for me when it comes to the details, Contained within it, trying to be explained away um, as something that could have been fabricated by Joseph Smith. It's just it doesn't hold up. Those those things don't hold up scientifically. And then, more importantly, spiritually, it's just like I believe that that you you can you can come to know whether or not that that. Jesus and heavenly father restored this church themselves on this earth by reading the book of mormon and by studying it and praying about it and the testimony of that it is of Jesus Christ I just I truly believe that that it is maybe the most tangible proof of of what we are doing here than than anything else
0: Absolutely such a great answer and you're right. I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? And th- and that's the unique position that we have to be standing here, two hundred years later, and two hundred years of people trying to tear this book down or trying to explain it away, and yet nobody has definitively, conclusively found anything to to to, to show how this book was made up or invented or faked or whatever the case may or be,
1: stolen or copied or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, it, it, you can't. It, nobody can explain it away even even here 200 years later you might be able to explain it away this or that but conclusively to the point where you've proven it, it 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 just hasn't happened and and exactly as you say verse 11 is is right with you saying proving to the world that the holy scriptures are true so it's not just about the book of mormon it's not just about the restoration of the gospel or or joseph smith as a prophet today but also proving to the world that the Bible is true. And in today's age, so much of it, there's a lot of question about the historicity of the Bible. Did the flood happen? Did Jesus really exist? Were these stories exaggerations? What about the Exodus? There's a lot that calls into the question of, did Israel even exist as a nation? What The scriptures, is it true? And to have something coming in the last days when we would be critically, scientifically looking at the Bible, scrutinizing it, diminishing it, or, or questioning it, to have something come at this time in this age that verifies it, that solidifies it. Because the role of the Book of Mormon isn't just about the restored gospel, but really, like you say, to prove that God is the same that he's not sleeping, he's aware, he's, he's talking to us now just as he did back then, that what he spoke about that back then was just as legitimate as what he is talking about now, that he is the same God, and this is concrete evidence. And I love that you said that this book, as we read it, it is scientifically, spiritually, however, however it conveys that message to us, there's a lot of people that have spent a lot of energy trying to prove how this book was faked or how this book came about at different different channels or not inspiration or not God's work or not scripture. But if you were to take that energy and devote it to unlocking the secrets in the Book of Mormon, and, and some people have, and I'm fascinated by what we have learned and how this book stands as evidence today of God's scripture and that God
1: is doing things as he has before. Well, to your point, too, it's like the the things that were criticized, say, when I was a kid, like, oh, the Book of Mormon says blank about like this, you know, that, that wasn't found in America at the time. And so that was like the big anchor for everybody to be like, oh, it's not true. And then evidence comes of that's like, oh, actually, not only that, but it was true. And there's no way that Joseph Smith would have had any idea about this. And, and the thing that you thought was proving it not true is just another anchor of of even like scientifically you know what i mean confirming confirming truths spoken in it that joseph smith wouldn't have known about and then it's like as time progresses like the more and more it's like well well what about this well what about this Well, what about this at times like yeah maybe we don't have all the answers but like time continually unlocks and um shows us more and more evidence of its truth on like a tangible factual basis that at a certain point you're like that's that's necessary for somebody to have faith in something right yes and 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 i love the idea that it's like that it's like yes you have something that's tangible and you still have to show a level of faith and in in understanding well maybe i don't have the exact answer to that and then like all things in time if you've if you've had you know spent time trying to figure stuff out you you can receive answers as you go down there like, holy cow, like how on earth would that have been? How how are we still discovering new things about this and the authenticity of this book even now? You know what I mean? Like yes. after you said, after 200 years of people, for, for whatever motive or whatever reason, doing everything they can to disprove the authenticity of this book and – as time continues, we, we continually learn more and more how insanely detailed and rich with things that, you know what I mean, no 20-slash-30-year-old person would have had any idea about. Oh, absolutely. And it, it reminds me,
0: I've, I've probably come back to this a lot throughout these, these podcasts we do, that Thomas S. Monson, something that he said over and over again really stuck out to me, that the wisdom of God oftentimes appears as foolishness to me. Yes,
1: I love that. Yeah. and The scriptures are full of that, by the way. It's always my favorite stories. Like, I know we've talked about it before. I don't mean to cut you off. But it's like the perfect example is Jesus walking across the water in the middle of a storm and Peter getting out of the boat. Like, where does man tell you the safest place in, a, in the middle of a storm out on the water is, right? But where was the safest place, Right. And the idea that like, at any time, the winds and the waves can turn that boat over. So even though you might feel safer in the boat, strangely enough, to God, the safest place is out on the water walking with him, right?
0: Right. And, and I remember so many times when, when we were younger, people would say, you know, there were no horses in America. They, they, this that is all the, ridiculous, well, that, right? That's what it
1: was, was the horses in America. Horses. That, was, that was their big like, oh, we got you now. And and then and
0: then they start finding evidence of, of horses in America and they they find bones in the excavations like, oh wait a second, we have to we have to revise everything we thought. But with God you don't have to revise. It might seem weird at first and foolish to believe it, but come to find out in the end, you're not disappointed. You you were right. And it's it's so cool. So some people that, that I really admire for having done this and some of the cool things that they've they've discovered because of it, because remember, you have to put your faith in there first. Instead of taking your energy and trying to tear it down, they're devoting their energy to trying to understand it. And because of that, re- they're rewarded with so much more. And Royal Skousen uh, d- did a research on the Book of Mormon. He's a famous linguist, a uh, professor at BYU. He, he did a study... On the vocabulary from the Book of Mormon. And what he found is that the vocabulary was not from Joseph Smith's period of time in English. It actually predates Joseph Smith. And not only does the vocabulary predate Joseph Smith, but the vocabulary predated the King James Bible. And uh, picking up on that, there was another scholar. uh, His name was Stanford Carmack. And he did a study on the Book of Mormon, but instead of focusing on the vocabulary, he focused on the syntax, the grammar, and the, the, the expressions and how things were put together in the words. And, and mind you, they're going back to the original writing of the Book of Mormon, not not things that were edited to try to make it sound better, but how it was translated by Joseph Smith as he looked and saw the words and, and read them off to the scribe. The scribe wrote them down. And again, dating the Book of Mormon to just the language that was used to write the book, he would date it to the late, to, to the... The early middle age to a time period that corresponds to about 1400 BC, excuse me, AD. Yeah, that would be, that would be really strange. No English back then. 1400 AD to 1600 AD. Again, predating the King James Bible. Which, which is kind of weird, right? Why was Joseph Smith, and not only this, but Carmack says that the, the phrases, the parts of speech, the syntax, the grammar, not only is it predating Joseph Smith and predating the King James Bible, but it's things that, that nobody should have any right of knowing in, in 1800. Like this is not Joseph Smith's speech. This is not common to him. This is not things that he'd be familiar with. And it's, it's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of interesting. And you look at it, why wouldn't Joseph Smith, if he's making up this book, why would he be making it up using English that predated him? Why, like, like us, if we were to write a book, would we be writing it in the style of Beowulf? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and these are things that he wouldn't have been very familiar with as he's trying to do it. And, and you might question, well, how is this happening? Why is it happening? And, and, and there's a couple theories here, right? I mean, you talk about Tyndale. The, the guy died uh 1538 so right in this time period when this english was being used that that's the english that that we're talking about in the in the book of mormon his life work was trying to translate the Bible into English. For that purpose, he was he was put to death and killed. So when God gives him power from on high, when he's looking into that rock or he's trying to get inspiration to know what to what words to write, who's on the other end of that inspiring him? Is the Lord calling servants on the other side of the veil to help him just as much as he's calling servants on this side of the veil? This is our work, this, the, the work of people that belong here on earth. And how is the Lord using his instruments even after our death to help things, not to say that that's how the Book of Mormon was translated, not saying that I have the answer, and maybe simply just the answer is the Lord did it in a different English just to prove that this was not Joseph Smith doing it. Maybe it was the Lord using older examples as a a way of signing the Book of Mormon, just as we see that Janus parallel, as we talked about in the first episode, as the signature of the Lord saying that the Doctrine and Covenants was his, not, not the work of man. Maybe the Lord is using old, unfamiliar English through Joseph Smith to translate the Book of Mormon as a way of saying, this is not Joseph Smith's work. This is not some uneducated farm boy speaking in terms that he'd be familiar with. I'm going to try to hide something here to to kind of put my own signature. Like like you see in art sometimes, and, and, and people have a way of of painting a certain style or or hiding something in the image that... That's just lost on the critics. If if you're if if you're not looking for it, or if you don't believe it, you don't see it. You don't notice it. But I mean, there is so it's
1: much. It's how Jesus taught, right? Absolutely. I mean, like the parables. That's to me. I mean, like to what you're saying, it's like even another way to go. This is this is the Lord signing this with. This is how I teach people things. On the surface, it's a good story for anybody, but for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, are going to see. Two, three, four levels deeper than that. And, and something that I've seen
0: that's really inspired me about the scriptures, and I, I could be it, it just off in my imagination on this one, though, but I look at the scriptures as not necessarily—the I, I, prophets are inspired, and they're writing what they think is good. They're telling their stories. They're telling about their lives, and they think they're just writing about them. But I think God has woven that together to where he's telling us about him and I think we learn about him through what these people are saying. And, and here's an example of that. We have this understanding of one-third of the host of heaven falling away and rejecting the gospel or rejecting God. But even though they rejected God, they were still sent here on earth, and, and they try us or they, they interact with us in a way that trying to be an adversarial role, right? But two-thirds of his children were righteous, so I go back to the story of Adam and Eve, and, and I read it, and it doesn't make much sense to me. How do you populate the entire world with three boys, Cain, Abel, and Seth? Like That, that, that doesn't happen. You've got to have a daughter here somewhere along the line, and you've got to be having other sons and other daughters. And, and clearly they did. In some apocryphal texts and pseudopigraphal texts, they talk about how Adam had 64 children or so many. But for as many kids as they mention, we only get three names, Cain Abel, and Seth. Why is it that only three are mentioned when you have all of these other children that he had to populate the earth? Well, you look at these three, and one of them falls away, rejects God, slays Abel, and then you have this one-third, two-thirds dichotomy where the story of the father of all the human race almost really becomes more the story of God and his children. And you see it play out when the world resets, because before Adam and Eve, the whole world's covered with water, right? And God separates the water from the dry land and creates things. But when he starts all over, what does he do? He floods the earth, and then he gets um, Noah on the ark, and you have the animals on the ark, and then he, he separates the water again from the earth so that there's dry land. And then you have almost this paradisical, all the animals there, and Noah and his family, and, and despite who let me in there, all you have is the three, Ham, uh, Shem, and Japheth. And of the three, you have Ham that gets cursed with the gospel because of, of some weird incident after they, they leave the ark. But then you have Shem and Japheth, which are blessed, and you have the whole two-thirds, one-third happening again. And then you see this play out in the Book of Mormon. And it might not be quite as obvious, but you have Lehi leaving. And you know Nephi's got sisters because they talk about his sisters getting married, but none of them are mentioned by name. So if we talk about who's mentioned by name, Laman, Lemuel, Sam, Nephi, Joseph, and Jacob, six kids. Of the six kids, Laman and Lemuel, two, decide to to stop following their father, to stop following the gospel, to fall away, if you will. So two out of six is one third where four out of six is your two-thirds. And despite the, the the separation, all of them still head to the same land. But for the one-third, they feel like it's a cursing. They, they kept not their first estate. They wanted to go back to Jerusalem, but they were cast out. They felt like they were losing something they wanted to go back to. And, and the... The new land was a curse to them. They thought it was terrible. Whereas in for the, the two-thirds, they were coming to the same place, but they were coming to receive an inheritance, to receive something better. So I see these stories, in the, whether it be the Old Testament or the Book of Mormon, that God's continually looking at us and trying to address us and tell us, this is not just a story about, about Lehi or a story about Noah. This is my story. You are my children. I am still talking to you. All you need to do, is here. I okay, I just wanted to, to end that with uh, with with two scriptures, okay. and then uh, then we'll move to the next point. Alma chapter twenty six. This is one of my favorites, verse twenty two. Yea, he that repenteth and exercises faith and bringeth forth good works, praying continually without ceasing, unto such is given to know the mysteries of God. Yea, unto such it shall be given to reveal things which never have been revealed. Yea, and it shall be given unto them to bring thousands of souls to repentance. And then third Nephi 26. And if it so be that they will, um, excuse me, uh, 26 verse 9. And when they shall have received this, which is expedient that they should have first to try their faith. And if it shall be shall so be that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. So it's up to us on what we do as we read this. Do we accept the Book of Mormon for what it is and demonstrate that faith first? If we do, the Lord has so many hidden, cool things waiting for us, things that nobody else has ever thought of or seen or experienced that, that he will allow us to, to see, to understand, and to bring to light so that his work can be manifested in these days. All right, next point. This was an interesting one for me, Doctrine and Covenants section 20, and it talks about, he says, to take heed members of the church. So this is, uh, he's trying to warn people so that they don't fall away. He says, verse 32, but there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. Therefore, let the church take heed and pray always lest they fall into temptation. Yea, yea. And even let those who are sanctified take heed also. So here's my question. And the first part he's saying, take heed all members of the church. And then he says, yea, even also, almost apart from, different from the members of the church, let those who are sanctified take heed also. And that causes me to pause for a minute. Do we not believe this is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? In order to be brought into the church, we need to go through the ordinance of baptism. Are we not sanctified? So, what's the difference? Why is he referring to these two different people as if they're two separate groups? Are the members of the church different from the ones that are sanctified? And if so, how or why? And I think he gives us a hint in verse 31. And we know also that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true to all those who love and serve God with all their might, mind, and strength. So, so they're trying to tell us, just because you're a member of the church, sanctification comes to all those who serve God with all their heart, might, mind, and strength.
1: Which which is good to bring up, and this is when when you pose this question, I guess my thought immediately went to and i know a lot of people inside the church that don't do that and myself included sometimes you know what i mean like we're all we're all working on it right uhhuh and i also know a lot of people outside of our particular religion religious practice that that probably do just as good if not a better job of dedicating their lives to service and to you know to following god's commandments so that that actually is a I I like that those two things are separated because they're not always one and the same, you know? Oh,
0: absolutely. And in fact, to that point, um, and and I'll come back to what we're talking about, but in verse 37, to your point, uh, they're talking about all those who are going to be baptized, all those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized, right? And it says here, uh, I'm going to skip a little bit to the end of the verse. It says, "...and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins." shall be received by baptism. You're like, wait a second. I thought baptism was for the remission of sins, but now they're saying you can't be baptized unless you've manifested that by the Spirit you have already received a remission of your sins. So what role is baptism playing? I I think... I think it's almost a misnomer. We associate baptism just because we're going in the water so similar to a bath. as This is what's washing away our sins. But it's not baptism that's washing away our sins. Baptism is a sign of a covenant we're making with God. It's the Spirit, right? And and here it's saying, "...those who have manifested that they have received the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins shall be received by baptism." even before they're baptized that spirit is manifesting that they have
1: received that remission of their sins but i think that and again like i might be totally off on this but i think that the i think that this becomes less confusing when you look at what that is actually saying which is the remission of sins not the not the annihilation of sins or the forever having never and never will sin again of sins you know what i mean uh-huh. it's the remission of sins it's like you know, if somebody has, say, a cancer or something like that, if they're in remission, it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that they that they don't stand the risk of potentially getting it again, or that it is it's just completely gone. It just means that it's not spreading or taking hold, or you know what I mean. Like it, Absolutely. that it is in remission, and I think that that's kind of an important thing too, because yeah, to to your point, like yeah, like you should be received unto baptism, hopefully with the idea that. Hey, I'm I'm now going to start the journey of trying my best to be better, knowing that I'm not going to be perfect and knowing that I'm going to be sinning all the time, but that um, but that I'm going through the eternal process of getting better over time, and that my sins aren't, you know, it's it's like I'm not I'm not a perfect person before I can get baptized, but I'm doing my best to change my behavior. Right, and and. Joseph Smith, if we look at him as an example,
0: when he went to the first, the, the sacred grove and had that first vision experience, he didn't go there seeking what church was true. That was secondary. His primary reason for searching was, what's my standing before God? How do I get my sins cleaned? What, what, what can I do, right? And, and, and secondarily is what church can get me that? And, and when he goes in verse five, It tells us that he received a remission of his sins um, at that point, when, when the Lord says, you're standing before me is clean. So as, as we talk about the difference between the sanctified versus the members of the church, they, we might be surprised to learn that there are a lot of people outside of the church that have been sanctified or their sins are remitted to the fact that they are trying to serve the Lord and the Lord is trying to help them. And, and it's not to say that they don't need to make covenants with God. It's not to say that baptism is not valid, but it is to say, that a simple act of being baptized is not the difference between whether or not you've been sanctified or whether or not you're you're on the path to to follow the Lord. I, and I don't know if I'm, I don't know if
1: I'm saying that a hundred percent right. I know what you. I th- I think you are. I think you are. Makes sense to me. Okay. Hopefully, it makes sense to everybody else. So, if, so
0: if if that's the case if if the simple act of baptism is not what's saving us and and the part of of being sanctified is is to be putting our whole heart, might, mind and strength into this is anybody sanctified how do we do that yeah, that's 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 the tougher question right it's it seems like back in the day that would be an easy deal like you're going through the refiner's fire. People are taking away your properties, people are burning your your stuff and making you walk around in the snow barefoot. Or you go back to the colosseum and the saints and what they endured. And those people said, "You know what? I will fight the good fight. I will worship God and and they would willingly be a martyr. Like those those people are saints. They they did it with all but what's the fight that we have?" And and something Brigham Young said really stuck out to me as I was reading these verses. He said that his biggest fear for the saints as he was preparing them and moving them out west he said his biggest fear was that as soon as they moved out west and and they were left alone that their biggest struggle or challenge or trial would be prosperity when when all of a sudden it's it's not picking sides are we still finding that motivation are is our heart still engaged and our might and our mind still engaged when when it's not being forced to by outside influence. And Jesus Christ says that it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is for an am- a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. So now here we have it. I mean, if we have it good, if we're comfortable, if we, if we have food on our table, if we've got jobs, and clothes, and, and, and there's not a whole lot of need, Christ says that he came to the sick. He came to the afflicted. He, came, he went not to the 99 that were all right, but looking for that lost sheep. How do we recognize the loss that's inside of us? How do we drive that need to humbly come to the Lord, even when everything seems to be going all right?
1: To be fair... Yeah. To be fair, um, money doesn't get rid of people's problems, <laughs> you know right? I mean? So the thing is, is that I I think that I think that I always just want to be careful personally not to be judgmental towards people's hearts whether or not they have money or they don't because I know, I mean, my life has been so blessed by a lot of really wealthy people who are incredibly. Humble and generous and paid it forward. And I sometimes, you know, rub shoulders with a lot of people that don't have a lot of money that are insanely prideful and wouldn't share their wealth even if they had it and spend most of their time talking bad about people that do have money as if they're getting the raw end of, you know, the deal. Right. And so, to, to even more to that point, like, I, I I agree that that sometimes we we associate money with not having problems, but my goodness, like that's that that couldn't be further from the truth in my opinion. Pe- people have problems, right?
0: Absolutely, and I think I think to your point, what what we're driving at here is I think a lot of the problems that we have. Don't manifest themselves on the surface as much as they have for other
1: people. Yes, that's a good way to put it.
0: The 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 story of the knight in shining armor, shining armor, and the dragon, right? The Greek heroes that had to go to go overcome all of these monsters. I mean, it's a cool story, and it's right in 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 what it's trying to convey. But our monsters today, our dragons that we're slaying, it, it might be different. It might change. It's not this physical challenge or this physical, but. It still takes all of our might, mind, and strength to, to, to find ways to, to really pray, to really come face to face with our weaknesses. We might not see that somebody is struggling with, with anxiety, with stress, with, with self-worth, right? How many people constantly beat themselves up thinking that they're not good enough? That, that everything they do is just not enough and they're their own worst enemy and they have to overcome this and realize who they are and see themselves through God's eyes or see themselves through, through the value that they have. And that's a fight that's taking all of their might, mind, and strength. And that effort, as much as it's a thorn in their side, and we, we've read about Paul talking about how he's prayed to have that thorn removed, but that thorn, I think, drives them to sanctification. It endears them, in the eyes and the heart of the Lord, as He looks and He sees our struggles, even if nobody else sees them, because because as you say, a lot of these things, wealth didn't take care of it. It's not like we don't have problems. Having good health doesn't mean that we don't have issues and struggles. Just because they're not as visual, just because they're not as surface surface, does not mean that we don't have the opportunity to still engage all of our heart, might, mind, and strength in trying to find the uh, trying to fight these these silent dragons or these these non monsters that we're trying to overcome Love it. all right next and uh we're probably running out of time here this I, there's so much to cover in this and uh maybe just want to touch on all of this organization of the priesthood as he talks about assigning the duties and who's responsible for what the duty of an elder the duty of a teacher the duty of a priest the duty of a deacon it's cool to see that here, Doctrine and Covenants section 30, at the beginning of the church, the Lord has already putting in place contingency plans, right? If, if there's no elders to preside, then it's the duty of a priest to preside. If there's no priest to preside, then the teacher presides. And this is what they do. You have separation of duties, responsibilities, and, and what to do in case of an emergency. There, there's a lot of organization, and it really attests to the fact that the Lord says, mine is a house of order. And right off the bat, before we even start into it, and we we talk um, business contingency planning when what to do if 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 there's a disaster or if somebody can't be in the business anymore. We're, that's not even being developed or employed much in businesses until the 1970s. But here in the 1800s, I can't imagine a whole lot of. Businesses back then are saying, "Okay, what what do we need to do to to make sure we have this continuity and organization?" That I don't I don't know that you had that level of organization yet. The church, right off the bat, and the very first step, is trying to take its time and organize and put things in order.
1: I would be a little bit nervous if I was one of those people getting um, removed in the contingency plan. <laughs> 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 you ever thought of that? Be like, wait a minute! What do you mean? If there's no more priests left, I'm a priest. What is what's that supposed to be? Why do we need a contingency plan for that? Yeah, uh, you didn't think about that, did you, Jason? Nope, sure didn't.
0: I right. did, I did, <laughs> and that's and that's why you're here, Nate. That's right. All right, that's all I've got for this lesson. Thanks for thanks for tuning in and joining us. It's awesome.
1: I want to uh, just real quick. Um, we're getting. Um, a little bit of a uh, traction with this podcast wanted just to say thank you for everybody that's been listening. Um, uh, some of the feedback that we've gotten is that, um, is that, uh, some of you have some questions and, um, feedback that you would like to shoot our way, um, about either like some past podcasts that we've done or some upcoming podcasts. And so, um, we now have a, uh, have an email address set up, so that you can send us feedback or send us any questions um, or, or uh, comments on either upcoming um, Come Follow Me lessons or previous Come Follow Me lessons. And that email address is hi at weeklydeepdive.com. And uh, if you send us that stuff, we will, uh, we will gladly receive all constructive criticism or um, positive feedback preferably positive feedback so that we don't hate ourselves i'm just kidding do whatever people criticize everything i do in my life anyways send whatever you got do your worst um and if you have any uh jason though on the other hand he's he's sensitive don't be mean to jason you can be mean to me
0: more than anything we just want
1: to hear from you guys yeah jason just wants to hear from you but i'm ready i've got i've got the i have got the battle armor on um more importantly though is if you have um any questions or anything specifically that you would like us to discuss or touch on, we would love to take a stab at it. In case we may have some perspective on it, and we will always preface that with, but we're also just trying to figure this out too. So, um, anyways, what do we what do we talk about next week, Jason?
0: Yeah, next week it's going to be Doctrine and Covenant sections twenty three through twenty six. And uh, we we talk a little bit about Emma Smith's uh, calling to to put the hymn book together.
1: Awesome. Ah, here we go. Now we're in my territory. (laughs) There there we are. All right, until next week. See ya.